What was the darkest day? We lost three of our guys to very bad feet, frostbite, and that sort of stuff, trench foot, where your toes are just totally swollen and distended and you can't do anything. It was just a really dark time because, again, people are looking at you saying, okay, now what? Tim Jarvis has reenacted two of the harshest Antarctic expeditions ever, choosing to do them in the original clothing with the same exact gear used a century ago. Like Douglas Mawson, he pulled a sled alone across the Antarctic for 300 miles. And like Ernest Shackleton, he led a small team in a rowboat for two weeks in the most dangerous polar ocean in the world. This is his story. Tim Jarvis. Thank you so much for being here. Nice to be here. This is uh, this is very exciting. I know yesterday you were speaking to some of the brightest minds in America at Yale, and now you're talking to me. So things have gone terribly wrong for you in the last 24 hours. You mean you're not one of the brightest minds in no, America? No, no, okay. I don't think all I right. am. I don't think. But hopefully after this conversation, maybe I'll be a little. I'll bit manage more. my expectations. Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll be a little bit more enlightened. But I found your story. I thought I think you are fascinating. A researcher, scientist, uh, conservationist. And, uh, and an adventurer, an explorer, which seems like a crazy title to give someone, an adventurer. But uh, you I are, can live with it. You are as true to that definition as possible. And you have a cool accent. That's, I love that. Uh, you, I've been practicing in the car. Oh, really? Coming down <laughs> here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is, I'm just, I'm blown away by you. Um, and also, you're six foot four? Five. Okay. All right. Six foot five. I st- when I stoop, I'm six four. For yeah, no, for no reason. The why pressures are, of life. Why are you so tall? This seems absurd for an adventurer. This seems like a detriment. <sighs> Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. In the genes. <laughs> yeah, in the I genes. Guess, but I I'm guess. pressure of life is, is compressing me, pushing yeah. me down. But yeah. Now there's a famous adventurer who you replicated his journey, Sir Douglas Mawson. Yes. Also yes, six yes, five. Yes, that's right. That's um, right. Could you tell me a little bit about Douglas Mawson's uh, journey? And then I want to know about your reenactment of that journey. What is his story? Well, you know, I'm I'm from UK originally and I moved to Australia and I moved to a town called Adelaide, right. where Mawson, as it happens, is from. He's long since dead, but that's where he's from. And I got there, and I'd been into the polar stuff for a long, long time. And someone said, hey, you're the same sort of size. You remind me of Mawson. You're the same sort of size as Mawson, same height as Mawson. Um, you're a scientist from the UK who's moved to Adelaide like he had done. And he had done an expedition where both his colleagues died. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one fell in a crevasse in Antarctica, and he went down the hole with the dog team and the biggest sled, which contained 80% of the food. So once that guy was gone, Mawson and the surviving guy had 320 miles to go to get back to camp with only 20% of the food they needed to do it. Their original mission was to traverse Antarctica, correct? Their original mission was to traverse a particular bit of Antarctica that he was really interested in. It was near the South Magnetic Pole. Right. Because the thing that people need to know is that the South Geographic Pole, 90 South, and the South Magnetic Pole, where your compass gets drawn, where the southern bit of your compass gets drawn to, uh-huh. are nowhere near one another. In fact, they're about a thousand miles apart. Is that they're, really? Yeah, they're, wow. they're a long, long way apart. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so he was trying to get to the source of magnetism. That's what he was really interested uh, in. And this is around 19... 19... This is around 1913. 1913. So just before First World War. Right. Um, but once that first guy had died, this 320 miles suddenly on only 20% of the food you need to survive looked really daunting. And right. sure enough, halfway home, the second guy died of what Mawson described as fever. So right. he wasn't sure, basically. This is Mertz, right? Mertz, exactly yeah. right. Xavier Mertz, Swiss, Swiss cross-country ski champion, doctor. You know, he was a very, very cool sort of guy, very accomplished guy. 
Um, but he died horribly in Mawson's arms. You know, right. he soiled his pants. He just, he just, he was hallucinating. He was in convulsions, and you know, it was pretty traumatic for Mawson. And then Mawson was the sole survivor of the trip. And everyone said, "Look, you know, surely, given the state Mawson was in, did he need to maybe cannibalise Mertz after his mm. death?" And so my idea was very simple: do it the same as Mawson had said he'd done it. But in my case, I travelled with this increasingly nervous Russian guy who had the need arisen. I might have needed to, you know, take a bit of his thigh or something <laughs> like that. Anyway, I can I can report that he's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He had some nice legs, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, you're a bit bony, you know. Yeah. But, um, but I lost seventy five pounds in in the effort of just trying to do it with the same uh, calories as Mawson. Right. So talk to me about that. So break that down. So you got to the true edge of Antarctica. Which, yes, yeah. I'm right on the coast of Antarctica at this stage in a very, very heavily crevassed area full of big glaciers and it's it's dangerous terrain. And, you know, the temperatures fluctuate between, in Celsius terms, minus 15, minus 20 degrees. So it's actually very similar to Fahrenheit. Right. When you get below zero to that amount, it's roughly the same kind of number. Right. And then all the way up to sort of quite warm temperatures is sort of, you know, you know, five degrees above. Very warm. Very warm. So you're yeah, <laughs> Scorching warm. almost. Yeah, Jeez. that's right. But I mean, the problem is it makes everything wet. So, you know, uh, I'd rather have cold all the time because as soon as stuff gets wet, right, I would find that I would sleep in my reindeer skin sleeping bag and it would get soaking wet during the course of the night. So I'm sleeping on the snow, right, because Mawson had lost most of his stuff. So I copied right. what he didn't have. To to the the inch like you yeah absolutely everything yeah. all the equipment leather boots hobnail boots yeah um, what does that look like like so what do you have with you what are you wearing so look back in the day they they used to wear um, cotton smocks literally about maybe twice the thickness of your of a shirt that someone would wear to the office you mm-hmm. know, nothing really just enough to keep the wind off right and the main uh, emphasis is on breathability because Antarctica is the driest, windiest place in the world. So you need you need the clothes to breathe, but keep the wind hmm. out. You're not worried about waterproofing because it's the driest continent in the world. Also, we've had some places no snowfall for 150,000 years, so it's like you know very very dry. Wow. So you're not expecting to get wet. Um, so you're wearing that. You wear woolens underneath, and you wear leather boots, and you know with just little hobnails, like almost like a golf golf stud on the base of it just to give you some grip and you had to get these custom manufactured like, they don't make everything this made everything made from scratch a lot of research wow to basically rebuild all the gear for the trip and in fact what i did was there's a english actor called kenneth branner who'd been in a show about shackleton mm-hmm. and they had borrowed one of mawson's outfits from a museum and oh, copied wow. it for the shackleton show oh, a wow. modern show they made like right. a drama program i then borrowed some of those outfits to use for my real life mawson expedition so everything went full circle that's a huge compliment to the costume artist it is that they you know, created yeah. something that was close enough that you're like yeah i'm gonna take this to an expedition yeah although a halloween costume although <laughs> it performs pretty badly i have to say I mean, oh really you know oh you know it's um it's uh you know it is what it is it's just not up to the task of really the extreme right conditions and you're you're trekking across this stretch of antarctica with just a sled just a sled same weight um wooden sled copied from the original of the museum 
uh, which came back because Mawson, only because Mawson made it. Everyone else died, but he made it. So I copied the sled exactly. I, I copied all the clothing, ate the same kind of food. Only thing I didn't do was eat people. And the idea was to see whether it could be done right. with the food that he said he had without the need to eat. You didn't, did you eat dogs? I ate the equivalent of dog meat. That was the, that was the thing. I couldn't eat dogs, so I ate uh, kangaroo. Oh, really? And kangaroo meat is very similar to dog meat in that it's just pure protein. There's no fat. Interesting. So I actually had a, a nutritionist really look carefully at that. So I didn't want any kind of cheating. Right. You take stuff that's got a bit more calories and people are going to say, aha. And that makes a big difference. Makes a big difference. And did you prepare it the same? Because I know that, that Mawson would boil it and they would kind of add some things to it to try to make it almost like stewy. Did you yeah, do yeah, similar? yeah. You, you, they make stuff called hoosh, which is basically a pot of boiling up everything you've got. You put a bit of whiskey in, you put tea, you put sugar, you put uh, congealed animal fat, you put uh, a bit of dog meat and off you go you know yeah. and it's 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 not great but when your body needs it it's it's good yeah you know, it tastes okay you didn't eat any of the liver though right didn't eat any of the liver the idea was to have a, like a control experiment because they ate dogs and the idea was to see if i did everything else the same eating only a fraction of the amount of food you need to really survive in those places because you got to imagine that you're putting out more calories than a tour de france rider on a daily basis about ten thousand calories wow. you're burning just with the effort of pulling a sled and the cold. And then I'm only eating 2,000 calories. So you're burning maybe 30 Mars bars worth of energy a day, yeah. and you're consuming about four. Yeah, you're at a deficit. So you're a... at a deficit big time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd finish my food by uh, 10 a.m. Oh, wow. And I had to wait till the next day to have the next small amount of food. And it's, it's really hard when you, when you try to go to sleep at night in a wet reindeer skin <laughs> sleeping bag yeah on the surface of the snow with all the cold coming through on your own with you know these these incredible blizzards with these wind speeds threatening to tear apart the fabric of this old tent yeah some nights i'd have to sit up and just push my back against the fabric of the tent stop the the, the blizzards just tearing the whole thing to pieces because if the tent goes you've you, you know you've had it did anyone try basically. to talk, talk you out of this well, it's too late once you're there. That's the trouble. <laughs> it's like a parachute jump. It's one moment of stupidity and the rest is kind of gravity. You know, but this, you, is, this is months of stupidity when you're planning true, it, getting true. a costume. What are you trying to say? Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, uh, the difficulty with this kind of stuff is that your reputation is everything. So if you mm -hmm. say you're going to do something, I like to follow through on what I say I'm going to do. And as soon as you start pulling the pin because things get a bit tough, then, you know, your reputation becomes tarnished and sort of game over so you've got to you've got to see it through that's what's interesting about you and moss and 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 shackleton comparing you to them they were in a time and place where they didn't really have a choice mawson was in the situation where he was a researcher and you used the best equipment of his time and once you know mertz died he had no choice but to go back and what's interesting about you is that you had a choice but you chose to persevere through that which yeah. i think is significant it's true. You know, there are a couple of things. They used to call them iron, iron men in wooden boats. They travel in wooden boats, but they're iron men. And right. I always I like, like that. that. Um, but yeah, you, you're absolutely right. You know, one of the big psychological problems with doing an old expedition as a modern person is you know that all this other equipment exists that would make things a hell of a lot easier, like a GPS, Cortex, Mars bars. Yeah, yeah. You know, Stuff you um, use in your everyday life, you know, like engines. flashlights, things yeah, like that. Yeah, any, anything to make life easier, but you're deliberately depriving yourself, whereas mm -hmm. those guys just use, like you said, State-of-the-art stuff. It may have been brutal, but at least 
psychologically they didn't think oh i wish i could just have my no, that's cell right. phone that's right like that's you right. had the, the the pleasure of modernity that then was taken away that's right and yeah, those that modern makes it comforts really and everything it does make it difficult look, look psychologically it's not something i really anticipated until i got down there and, and then suddenly that weighs really heavy mm-hmm. on your mind and then but you know the thing about humans is that we're so adaptable and this is kind of both our strength and our weakness i think um but we're so adaptable that after about a week, you start to become that person. Particularly when I used to look at uh, John, his real name is Evgeny, by the way, but I would look at him and as the beard started to appear and he started to get more emaciated and the clothes started to get more dirty and ragged, he started to become those people I'd seen in those early images. And you derive a strength from seeing them. You think, well, we need to live up to the uniforms oh, wow. we're wearing. And it becomes almost like a kind of badge of honor. It's yeah. really quite something. So talk to me about like the first week. So you're on the ice, you're walking, you feel pretty good, I imagine, because you've been you know, yeah. training up until this point. Yeah. What point does it start to feel like, oh, this is really challenging. This is really difficult. Well, to be honest, it was challenging right from the outset because, I mean, Yes, we were sort of relatively fresh, but at that, at that stage in the expedition, Mawson and Mert still had a few dogs left. So mm. even though the dogs were weak, they'd lost the big dog team down the, down the hole, right. but they still had five or six dogs left in the smaller dog team. And so those dogs continued to pull until they could pull no more, and then they fed the weakest to the strongest. But even up to about 10 days in, they, they, you know, they were only just... They killed the last dog, Ginger. The poor old Ginger got, you know, got the chop and then was eaten mm-hmm. by Mawson and Mertz, who consumed everything. Paws, uh, ears, you know, all the um, offal, you know, liver, kidney, brain. They, that, they, they consumed everything. That was the most interesting part. That's why I brought up liver before. Yeah. Is because uh, Mawson was a great leader, it seemed like, from, from the text. And he was with Mertz and Mertz is in this tent and he's dying and, and he's shriveled and he's just choosing not to walk. And he's, I guess, enduring some type of psychosis yep. and he is having a hard time eating. So Mawson in his charity says, Hey, let me give you the better parts of the dog and like the liver, some th- things that are really nutritious and, and nutrient dense. And I'm going to eat like the paws and the brain and things like that. Yeah. And that potentially could have spelled error for, for the for the mission can you explain on that yeah look mawson i think thought he was doing the right thing by feeding mertz the offal so the liver the kidneys things like that um because they were softer more palatable because the dogs by this stage were just skin and bone so he thought you know let's not give him the stringy bad stuff let's give him the really rich stuff maybe he'll come good and of course inadvertently he was poisoning him because had he you know this is where you go back to some of the norwegian explorers um polar explorers you know, Norway is up near in the Arctic and they used to talk to the indigenous people and they really knew you just don't eat the offal of any animal, polar bear, you know, uh, mm. dog. You, you just don't do it because they contain toxic levels of vitamins for people. Mm. So it's vitamin A, toxicity is what he got. And livers contain a lot of that. Mm. So he thought he was doing the right thing as she was killing Mertz. Oh, that's wild. So yeah. you are on your journey, your expedition, and... About how long are you traversing the Arctic with a sled or the Antarctic with a sled? So, I mean, look, I've done many trips down there, but that particular one was 47 days. It took mm. me before I sort of fell over the, the finish line right. at the end, having uh, continued on with, with John for 24 days. So the idea was that um, we'd either cover, cover the same distance as Mawson and Mertz had covered before, they, before Mertz died or... Um, 
taken the same amount of time that they were together, which is 20, 23 days, 24 days. Um, and then John would be extracted regardless by a medical team. And then I'd be left on my own for the next you know, month and, right. and just see how I fared, basically. And if I didn't turn up to the end point, they'd assume that something was was wrong. It was, it was kind of, you know, it was, it was challenging. Yeah. Challenging. And I'm curious. So there's two components of this that are obviously fascinating, the physical and the mental. So I guess first the physical. Uh, you're losing weight every single day, working at a deficit. Are About you, two pounds a day you're losing your weight. Two pounds a day. Two pounds a day, yeah. And are you getting injured? Like, how are you keeping your body fresh? Like, what is the strategy for you're that? You're just not. I mean, uh, as I say, I mean, you really rely on two things, you know, food and rest to, to make any kind of recovery down there. And, you know, the food was just woefully inadequate. I'm, I'm sort of 7,000 calories in deficit a day. So it's 20, 22 Mars bars worth of energy a day in deficit for right. what I actually need. And then... You know, lying in the sleeping bag where you can normally regenerate in a modern expedition because you've got mats underneath you, stopping the cold coming through. No, I'm in a I'm in a wet reindeer skin sleeping bag. No because, recharging. And the difficulty is that thing gets wet because my body heat escapes, melts the snow beneath me, makes it wet. When I take when I get out of that in the morning, roll it up, put it on the sled, and pull it around in minus twenty, it freezes solid. So wow, to get into it in the end of the evening, you're just cracking it to get a, get it open to unroll it. And then it's frozen. And then you get uh, into a frozen thing, and then your body heat obviously warms it up, and then you're wet again, and then the cycle repeats itself. So, so you're just either freezing, you're just or wet. going downhill, you know, quickly, right? Quickly. And the first half of the of the ex- expedition, how does that compare to the second half physically? So look, the second half uh, was essentially it was in two halves. So John was there for the first half, and I was on my own for the second. So you know, once he'd gone. Suddenly, all the problems, all the judgments you've got to make about whether the terrain is too crevassed to travel a particular route, whether you think the, the, the tent's going to withstand the next blizzard, uh, injuries you have, equipment failing, um, just a bit of humor in the evening and just having a good old chat about something. Right. Suddenly, you haven't got anyone to share that with, and then you're in a world of pain just on your own. And that actually is psychologically very challenging, and it actually felt like you died because suddenly... It was this space where he had been, yeah. and now you're on your own in the Antarctic. It's pretty unforgiving right. as a place. I imagine that moment when I read, you know, Mawson's account that he's in this tent holding Mertz, and then Mertz passes away. The feeling of having another human being with you to then silence, and the and the wind. You're the only person to hear. You are completely alone. It's just you and your own thoughts. It's right. You know, like many of the critics who'd said, look, um, one of the main arguments was used for. For the fact that Mawson may have needed to eat Mertz to make it, the calories his body, dead body gave, actually got Mawson through. One of the one of the things was, apart from the f- the amount of food he needed, was the fact that he stayed for a couple of days with Mertz at that point when he died. Right. And people said this was him coming to terms with the decision to take some of his flesh. I personally think, you know, you've been through everything with this guy, and y- you know, and it's a very lonely place. It's a brutal place, really lonely, and. You know, even a dead body provides some sense of companionship. I mean, I know it sounds strange. Right. And I just felt that he was just coming to terms with the fact that he was going to leave his friend behind and, and sort of walk away. And that's tough, yeah. tough to do. Yeah. Now, talk me through the psychological aspect. So are you meditating throughout this? Like, what is happening internally? Yeah. So, look, I mean, you know, expeditions are all about um, managing real extremes of, of mood mentally. And, and, you know, the trouble with an expedition where you're on a starvation ration is your blood sugar levels are low. Mm-hmm. 
you're extremely cold, you're completely exhausted, and it's very difficult to remain uh, focused and remain positive. Um, you kind of you kind of go from sometimes appreciating the enormity of what you're doing and and really kind of kind of getting off on that. Other times you're very kind of goal focused. You think if I can just get to the end of this next hour, um, I can you know reuse that tea bag. Mm. one more time and see if I can get anything out of it. Uh, other times you think about, you know, friendships you've had with people that are now no longer part of your life and you mm. you go off on this kind of great, you know, journey in your mind. Other times you kind of, you know, you just think of things and you intellectually kind of analyze them. Other times you think, look, I'm just a guy at the bottom of the planet spinning around at 20,000 miles an hour going around a relatively insignificant star somewhere on the outer arm of a fairly insignificant galaxy somewhere in the universe and you just get really esoteric about it all. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of meditative in some way. Right. And, uh, you know, you come back with a different appreciation for life. You spend so much time on your own and so much time worried about dying that you actually come back and really live life more fully actually mm. as a result are you thinking about your girlfriend wife anything like that is there well a, yeah i mean she was part? my girlfriend at the time and then i thought well you know i think we should take this further you know because you're there and 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 uh all the important things in life you know assume a far greater you know <laughs> place and and you see perspective and i thought well, i'll ask her to marry me when i get back if i can make it through this thing so and did you i did Oh, wow. I did. I, I, I don't know how you bring that up. I don't know if you're like, hey, compared to the Antarctic wasteland, you're not too bad. Yeah, Let's that's right. Married. You know, relatively speaking, you're good compared to the terrible <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. Wild. So you just landed. And how quickly after you ended the expedition did you propose? Well, you know, I got to the end of this thing in 47 days and I was in very poor shape, of right. course. And You were uh, already on one knee. Like, that's I perfect. Was, <laughs> yeah, yeah was already, I was already groveling and yeah. it's been that way ever since. So, the, the, you know, so I'm, 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 I'm at a low ebb. And uh, in Mawson's case, you know, he missed his ship home, by the way, when he survived. That's the craziest part of the story. Would you mind explaining that? Yeah. So he, he gets to the end. Um, he, he decides to rest at a little cache of food about a day out from the hut where he thinks there may just be people who are there to, to meet him from the expedition team. And he thinks, I'll just sit this out. This is another reason that the, the people who said he must have cannibalized Mertz gave. They were saying, look, this is him coming to terms with the fact that he's going to meet his other colleagues and he's not going to be able to look them in the eye and, and they're going to see that he committed this terrible sin. But actually, he was just so exhausted, I think, that he just stopped to eat this cache of food. It's reasonable. And in so doing, you know, 24 hours elapses. Meanwhile, the ship leaves. So his voyage home goes in that in that 24-hour period that he chose to rest, which is kind of disastrous. And as he gets to the hut, he sees the steam on the horizon and the ship sailing away. Now, looking at it, subsequently, it's probably saved his life because he was just so, so completely knackered that, you know, he had no opportunity to, you know, he wouldn't have made the, through a, through a rough journey in a, in a sailboat across right. the Southern Ocean, you right. know. Um, and he spent, you know, a month just getting back to some sort of normality in the, in the hut. And I went through a not dissimilar thing. I mean, I arrived at a base, ultimately, and I had about four weeks there just resting and trying to recuperate wow. and, uh, before I too got on a ship and it was a two-week journey to get back to And what does that recuperation process look like? Civilization. You start eating normally, you're getting a lot of rest, but, you know, it's a bit like someone who's really thirsty, who sort of comes out of the desert, you know, you can't just give them a glass of water or something. You, you've got to just allow them to really slowly 
mm-hmm. bring themselves back around. And so I had to just start. I had to start. I had to continue eating more or less the same sort of stuff, but just in slightly bigger mm. quantities. Build myself up over right. three or four weeks. Now, can you tell me about the twenty-four hours of reaching basically the finish line? Like, what is happening to you psychologically at that point? Your body's probably at its worst. Mentally, are you at your worst? Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing the thing with expeditions is you you get so good at breaking down the total into small pieces that actually, funnily enough, you know, even when you get to the last day, it doesn't feel like it. you just think, you know close but no cigar you know 46 days 47 days doesn't make any difference i've still got to keep it all together you're looking for crevasses you're looking to make sure you keep going Um, and i knew in my mind that we had one experiment to do right at the very end of the expedition which was for me to deliberately climb into a crevasse and see if i could get myself out on the rope hand over hand like mawson did this is like a just an experiment we did because he had fallen in and he got himself out hand over hand. With the many sled. people said, "How could he do that?" Yeah, the sled, I guess, so trapped him. It in the snagged crevasse. on the on the uh, the top of the crevasse, and it was just lucky. And he managed to. He'd fallen in a few times before, and so the rope that was attached to his waist that he used to pull the sled, he'd made knots in, so that in the event he did fall in, and the sled kind of acted like an anchor, he could he could climb up the knotted rope, and that's exactly what happened. So I did the same thing. So I knew that was coming, and I just put all my energy into just trying to get out and then just fell on a heap at the end you know and you don't even you don't even celebrate you're just too too tired you're just pleased you're not doing it again because i had no rest days for 47 days so i mean the next day you just you just sleep and yeah you know are you spiritual you know i'm not a kind of denominational denominationally religious kind of person so i don't have any particular faith per se but i've had some pretty interesting experiences where you know i've really felt that there was something else there you know mm-hmm. and and in my mind altered state i even over you know you you, you got the thrumming of the guy lines of the tent in in a, in a blizzard and you hear voices and i i heard the footfalls of a person walking outside the tent things like that when i was there and you just wonder you know what that is mm-hmm. you know uh, could be just your state of mind but is it something else or is it something within you that sort of emerges when you put yourself in this state of duress i don't know right so you finish that expedition and you get some uh, public acclaim a lot of people are really excited both for you completing this but also completing it with period specific gear yeah which is remarkable at the time yeah not least of all the mawson family they were very happy it was a big media thing in Australia because Mawson is kind of, he was on the old $100 bill. He was a famous kind of guy. Yeah. And so uh, a book came out, uh, um, uh, a film came out. And he's um, vindicated. He's not a, he's not a yeah. cannibal, which yeah. in my opinion, I'm like, if even if he was a cannibal, like who really cares? I wouldn't have like, judged him. And, and it wasn't my central thing. I just wanted to honor him, but it became about the cannibalism angle for, for the media, you know, and that's right. the way it was. But yeah, I, I was happy. The, the family were happy and, you know, I didn't. I didn't ever claim I'd done exactly what he did because, of course, he was down in Antarctica for a lot longer than me, sure. doing stuff before that accident and before that forty-seven day trip. But you know, um, all was good. And then I, um, you could have just called it quits. You could have gone yeah, to researching, but- <clears throat> gone to environmentalism, just focused on that. Yeah, that probably would have been a little easier. Not in my personality. That's the <laughs> trouble. Um, Someone reaches out to you. Someone very interesting. So, yeah, so I got a call from uh, Alexandra Shackleton, who is Serena Shackleton's granddaughter, the Honourable Alexandra Shackleton, I should say, 
And she said, you know, congratulations, great achievement. Now, I've got a ch another challenge for you. And, and that began seven year process of retracing the journey of Shackleton. And now I've done lots of expeditions. I've only done two the old way. One was Mawson and now I was embarking on this Shackleton yeah. expedition. Now, Sir Ernest Shackleton is how I became aware of you in the first place. I had read yes. Endurance. Yes. Um, I had actually talked about it on the Lancing. podcast. Yeah. Podcast book. before. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's just an amazing book. It more importantly, just an amazing story. Yes. And I became enamored with Shackleton, both as like a man and as a leader. And I guess for me personally, I'm 26. I sometimes have a hard time, like sort of, uh, grasping what masculinity means. And like, I sometimes like wrestle with what those terms are and like how to really, uh, situate myself like as a leader and who can I look to? And Shackleton became one of those people for me. I really admired him so much. And I just thought he was an amazing person. Amazing. Um, yeah. And I'm curious, would you mind just breaking down sort of like his original journey and what his original voyage was supposed to be and what ended up occurring? Yeah. Well, you know, Shackleton was around in the heroic era, just like Mawson and Scott and Amundsen, the, the Norwegian, and in fact, Peary from the States. They were all these heroic era explorers. And actually, uh, Shackleton did did four expeditions. His first one, he was with Scott on, on an expedition to Antarctica. Is that the it? Nimrod? Um, Nimrod was was Shackleton's second expedition. Ah, it's his, he, the first one that he led, but the second expedition that he'd been on after. He was on Discovery with Scott. Nimrod was his first one, where he tried to get to the South Pole on foot. Turn with, round. Yeah. With Mawson, I think. Mawson yeah, was on so the Mawson was there too, interestingly. But Mawson was on another... Often these expeditions had teams that did different things. Mm -hmm. So Mawson went off again to try... With this fascination with the magnetic pole, off he went on a journey to try and get to that. In fact, he did do it. And Shackleton, meanwhile, went for the geographic South Pole, which is the big one. Right. And he famously turned around 97 miles from his goal, his life goal, and uh, when he got home, he said to his wife, I, th I thought you'd rather a, a, a live donkey than a dead lion. And, um, but he saved everyone in, in, in the course of doing that. Whereas right. a lesser person might have just plowed on yep. and sacrificed the team in pursuit of his ego, really, which he didn't, which right. is amazing. Yeah. Um, he then went down again. So after that, um, Scott and Amundsen reached the South Pole. Scott, of course, died with everyone. Amundsen made it, and that goal had been achieved. So Shackleton went on his famous expedition, which was to try and cross the whole of the continent, one side to the other, right. via the South Pole. And everything went wrong on that trip. And the survival journey that, that emerged out of the kind of ashes of that expedition were really a, a far bigger story than the original goal of crossing Antarctica would have been. Yeah. So I guess in short, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of the details, him and a crew of 52, 53 men? It, it, was, 20, it was 27 plus him. So it was 28 men uh, on that trip. On so that trip. 27 men, they leave Buenos Aires, they go to Antarctica, they have this wooden ship called the Endurance, they get stuck in an ice sheet, and then now they're stranded on an ice sheet for basically like six months, eight months, something like that. Yeah, they get stuck in the ice. Um, the ice closes in around the hull of the ship, crushes it. Yep. And in the end, the only thing holding it up is the fact the ice is packed around it tightly. As soon as the wind changes direction, ice goes apart, down goes ship. And yep. they've been stuck for 10 months on the ship. Right. They then live for another five months on the same ice that had claimed the ship. Which is just in, insane. In, in just a series of really precarious camps. One was called Ocean Camp, one was called Patience Camp. 
and you know things were looking pretty bleak. And this ice flow is basically breaking in half every couple of days. It's and yeah, they're but, they're on it. And it's like a mile long, and then it breaks in half. And now it's half a mile. Oh yeah, and, and then it it's became, a quarter it, of a mile. It became smaller and smaller and smaller. In the end, it was about the size of a tennis court, and they were just on this thing. 27 of them under three of the upturned lifeboats from the ship, which are these 22-foot keelless rowboats, basically. Killer whales in the water, uh, winter approaching, not enough food. Uh, You know, what comes next, you know? Yeah, just Um, floating in the ocean, basically, aimlessly. Yeah, and and he'd been... Meanwhile, Shackleton has got them playing soccer and, (laughs) and, and, you know, doing lectures and all the kind of stuff you don't do if you think you're going to die. So he, he was clever because it made people feel that he had the measure of these conditions and that somehow he was going to get them out of it you know because he wasn't panicking right just amazing yeah it's incredible leadership and then they basically float on this ice until they get close to a little island and not even close really five days out from a little island that's right and then they all jump on some boats yeah and they row through a storm in the antarctic like the most insane shit ever and they land on this little island Uh, i mean you know look even though i've done what I've done, I still marvel at that trip because, I mean, you know, their, their hand was forced. The ice broke up underneath them one night, and so they put the boats in the water, like you said, five days. But, I mean, these are keelless rowboats with yeah. no deck, with mountainous seas. The temperature is is freezing. The water is freezing, literally freezing. Yeah. Uh, the only reason it's still liquid is because it's kind of saline. Yeah. Otherwise, it'd be just totally solid. And, you know, they're, they're hypothermic. They're, you know, they're, they're, they just don't have enough food. They have no rest. Um, you know, they're, one guy's bailing constantly with a bucket to stop the whole thing just going under. They, you know, they, they can't feel their hands. There's one it's moment just, in the book that's so fascinating where they say they would rather be in the water because at this point the rowboats are full of water. Yeah. And they would rather be in the water because the water is warmer than the air. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. an insane concept to even imagine. Yeah. You know, it, it, look, it, look, I know what it's like and, and it, it is, it is. You know, it's just brutal, really. I mean, to to, yeah. to make that decision. So you know. they they make it basically, and it, they've been now on ice for they haven't been on solid ground for over a year. Yeah, twenty two months actually been twenty. But if you include the journey down from the UK, and you know, it's insane. It's twenty two months. And yeah. I'm reading the book, and they finally make it to land, and I go, oh, thank goodness, it's over. Yeah, and that's kind of where the story starts that's right in a way that's and, right and this is where your story starts also that's right I so mean, what happens for them and and what do you recreate so they get to this island called elephant island named after elephant seals that live there not not the real type obviously and, <laughs> and it's just on the way to nowhere it's just the remote jagged fang of rock sticking out of the southern ocean no human population to this day it's just too remote too on his inhospitable and you know they all celebrate you know, they've saved themselves as far as they're concerned. Shackleton knows better. He thinks we're not going to survive the winter. It's coming fast. Uh, only thing for it is to try and effect some sort of rescue mission. Trouble is, nearest place is 900 miles away, 800 nautical miles away across the roughest ocean in the world. The only vessel they've got is a kind of rowboat, basically. Yeah. Uh, so he takes the five strongest men, uh, puts planks on the most seaworthy of the three rowboats, taking them off the other two boats, and leaves 22 of the guys behind on Elephant Island and gets together with the five strongest and off he goes across the Southern Ocean on this perilous rescue mission. Insane. And basically the Insane, stakes yeah. are he has all of his men on Elephant Island yep. and he's going on a rowboat with five other guys yep. and they're, they're going out into this uncharted ocean trying to hit a tiny little island of whalers. And if they miss the island in either direction, they're dead. That's about right. And, and all the men that he brought with him that he was supposed to care for are also dead. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. He doesn't get through. Everybody dies, basically. Right. Um, and, and, you know, even if he misses South Georgia, which is the name of the island he's trying to get to, boat with no keel, which is the kind of vertical thing sticking out of the bottom of the boat on modern yachts, you don't just turn around and have another go. You see it going past in the rear view mirror. You can't turn around and sail back because the winds and currents are pushing you kind of north. Wow. And you can't, you can't tack upwind in, in, in a boat with no keel, right? Oh, you I just, didn't realize You that. can point that way and try and kind not of climb out of the lobster pot, but in reality, you're just going to get pushed backwards. Oh, that's crazy. So he had to get there and he had to land where he could. If he'd missed it, the next land is Namibia in Africa, about 4,000, three and a half, 4,000 miles further on. He only so brought rations no for four weeks anyway. He, he, you know, they're already, they're already in terrible shape. Right. He lands, but he lands on the wrong side. You know, he lands on the southern side of the island and the whaling stations, they're on the northern side and in between is a mountain range and no one's ever climbed it. Yeah. And he has no climbing equipment. He has no climbing kind of background. Uh, he's got one little length of rope. He's made... Some crampons, you know, the spikes on the bottom of the boots, taking nails out of the packing cases from the boat, you know, the ship's stores. Yeah. Um, and, you know, off they go into the mountains of South Georgia, which is technical mountaineering with nothing, basically. No tent. Yeah. So they can't stop. Mm -hmm. If you stop, you die. Yeah, it's remarkable. And he crosses in the time that even Reinhold Messner, the world's greatest modern mountaineer, has been unable to replicate wearing plastic boots, Gore-Tex jackets, sat phones, GPS, you know, Mars bars, probably, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, and incredible. What, what's remarkable about that leg of the journey, I guess two legs, right? That's what you did. You yes. recreated that. Yeah. So we rebuilt the boat. Uh, I spent years researching, rebuilt the boat, learned to traditionally navigate. So, you know, using a sextant to get an angle to the sun. Yeah. So talk, Use, to, me, talk to me about the sextant. This is yeah. so remarkable to me because I'm thinking yeah. like, okay, I'm here on Elephant Island. I got to get to Southern Georgia. Yeah. I could, I'll have my GPS, I'll, I'll look at the stars. Like, I know where I'm going, as long as I'm going yeah, the right way. Yeah. That's not really true. No, that's true. I mean, look, a sextant is one of those one of those devices where you look through it and you, it gives you an angle and you set it and you take an angle to any celestial object, moon, sun, stars. Um, the difficulty Southern Ocean is you just don't see them. You know, it's right. foggy, it's, it's claggy, you can't see anything. And you've got to see, if you're going to use the sun, You've got to see the sun when it's at the high point in the sky mm. where you are. There's no point seeing it when it's low on the horizon. It's got to be at that high point. So on the occasion you see it, you've got to kind of look at it, take a bearing, write down the numbers, do the calculations, and then look at it again a couple of minutes later. If it's climbed higher, you've got to then get, disregard the last reading and, uh. and you keep going until it starts to dip and then you take that one. And you run the numbers and then you work out your latitude. So where you are on the planet, on the horizontal lines, north-south, mm. you know, doesn't tell you where you are east-west. That's guesswork, right? That's just, you've got to kind of get, that's dead reckoning. Yeah. And, you know, he has two storms, a hurricane. He's got seas which are 75 feet from peak of one wave to trough of the next. You know, it's, it's, it's brutal stuff. Boat's threatening to capsize the whole time. And, you know, he makes it. He makes it. Yeah, it's remarkable. Crosses the mountains, raises the alarm, saves all the men. You know, it's just uh, Edmund Hillary said it's the greatest survival journey of all time. Yeah, yeah, it might be. Now, you were crazy enough to recreate it. So talk to me. What was the challenge like while you're, you know, leaving Elephant Island, basically, in your own tiny little topless rowboat? Yeah. What happens to, you know, 
in the first week? What's what's happening psychologically? So you know, we built a ba- basic deck like he did, but you know, it leaks a lot, and um, and you know, we did this voluntarily, right? So um, you get in the boat, you push off. You're not sure it's the right thing, but you do it anyway. And and once you're something, then switches as soon as you're 200 yards offshore. You're on Shackleton's journey. There's no going back. So right. all you've got to do is kind of steal your resolve to just make the first step, and then the rest is kind of the same journey as his, and, yeah. and you've got no choice. And, uh, you know, I never forget pushing off, and we were not even a day in, and a massive iceberg appears in front of us, and I thought, how the hell are we going to get around that? And I tried to sail downwind of it, because a little toy mast you got with a little sail, and... Uh, one of the guys on board who was a very, very good sailor, the captain, the captain, because I was the leader of the expedition, Nick, good friend of mine, skipper. And he said, Christ, don't go, don't ever do that again. Don't go downwind. Because if you it's like it's like a a city block with apartment buildings on it. If you go downwind of it, they block out the wind, the iceberg blocks out the wind, and you're Stuck. just sitting dead in the water and then the iceberg runs you over. So don't do that. You've got to stay up. So you know you're learning all the time. Oh, that's crazy. Learning all the time. So you're getting dumped on with, with all the time. water and rain for, uh, what, two weeks, basically? Yeah, two weeks. Two weeks of big sea state. Uh, we had a couple of calm days. The rest were not, you know. And so you've got waves crashing in. You're standing in kind of knee-deep, uh, you know, essentially freezing seawater. Can't feel your toes. You can't feel your hands. Your clothing is totally wet. You're borderline hypothermic. You do an hour on the helm of the boat, then you bang on the hatch. Next guy comes up, you go down, and you spend the next five hours trying to dry your clothes with your body heat, and then you repeat. You know, that's the way it works. Um, and you're in a seated position, sitting on top of rocks, mm-hmm. which Shackleton used for ballast to stop the boat tipping over. We took the same weight of camera batteries because we made a film for Discovery Channel. Right. And then we took a few extra rocks just to make up the make up the weight and you know it's it's a brutal uh scary unpleasant um harsh (laughs) environment not for everyone how did you pick the crew so that was a process of a few years you know and basically i look for people who who are sort of selfless they're prepared to work for one another they've obviously got to have top skills so you know we had you know fantastic round the world sailor uh, another sailor with seven world records in sailing my climbing partner, Baz, is former regimental sergeant for the Royal Marines, which is an elite regiment. He's a fantastic mountaineer. Another guy who's a great boat builder and another guy who'd summoned, summoned Everest three times and is the UK's former free diving champion. So single breath, diving as deep as you can. He wow. was the, camera, cam, the guy who kept the cameras going on board the boat. Pretty qualified crew. Really like. qualified crew. I probably wouldn't have um, made it. <laughs> you never know. Maybe. You know, it depends. <laughs> Let's see what skills you've got. Yeah. And, and um, you know, People say, look, is that cheating a bit? Because, you know, they were, you know, is it is it unfair to stack the deck in your favor with some really good people? And I said, well, who do you reckon the original guys were? There were no kind of Muppets. They were the best of top the time. Of the best, best of the best, you know. Right. So um, we were just trying to, to, to live up to, you know, the very high bar that these guys had set. Yeah, and Shackleton's story is so remarkable to me because he – different than Mawson, feels like a real explorer. Mawson seems to me more like an academic researcher type yeah. that became an explorer. Like Shackleton just had a thirst for adventure. And yeah. he was a, really just an amazing leader. And I'm curious, for you, what was more challenging? The lonely solitude 
of Mawson's voyage, just trekking across the Antarctic, or the communal leadership challenge of having to guide, you know, this handful of men? The communal one, definitely. I think, I think you know, in time, believe me, I had some very, very dark times on the on the solo trip. But I think when you're with such a, a high performing team, um, and you're trying to show leadership, when often you're not the expert in any of the niche areas that you're any of the niche situations you're faced with, like, you know, big sea state. I mean, you're at night in this boat that's threatening to capsize. You're about, you know, 14, 15 inches above the surface of the sea and you've got, you know, mountain mountains of water crashing in on you and you can't even see what's going on. And, you know, I'm not the best sailor on the boat. I'm probably the second worst sailor mm. on the boat. Um, Baz, my climbing partner, probably being the worst, if should I can say me. that. I should say, have brought me. You would yeah, have been the third worst. A legend in every other respect, but, I mean, he and I were probably the worst sailors. Right. And, you know, you're trying to show some leadership, telling guys how to suck eggs who know far more than you about that stuff. And it's actually you've got to really uh, be confident in, in your own skin mm-hmm. to be able to give advice to people who know technically more than you do about particular topics. So right. It's, it's really challenging. Yeah, it's interesting that the leadership component was, would you say, was more lonely than... Yes. Being actually alone? Yes. Why? Yeah. You know, leadership is a lonely place because you have to you have to present a very confident exterior. Um, as soon as you start doubting your ability to pull something off, other people see it in your eyes. They see it in you. Mm. And, you know, that's a problem. And But you have no one else to talk to. And you're on a boat in, you know, closer than you and I are sitting. We, we, we've got six guys living in the space the size of a queen-size double bed, but it's rocks. Yeah. With you know, a quarter of an inch of wooden planks between us and the, and, and, and the and the and certain death in the Southern Ocean. So you're in this real, real pressure cooker situation. You've got no one to it's all in your head. Right. And you've got to be outwardly confident. And that's that's far more lonely than being on your own where you can scream and shout and mm. lose it and you know, it doesn't undermine anybody else's confidence in you. It's just you. Yeah. On your own. What was the darkest day? Uh, we had some. We had some dark moments. I mean, I, I think. I think storms at sea, where we didn't think we were going to make it, they were. They were pretty interesting. Um, I think when we got to South Georgia, when we realised that three other guys were in such poor shape they couldn't continue, and that sort of was a problem because we'd intended there were sort of three sailors, three sailors, three climbers in the six person team. And the idea was if we got to South Georgia, the three climbers of which I am one would remain in the old gear. The three sailors, meanwhile, would put on modern stuff brought in by a yacht that kind of rendezvoused with us at the island. And two cameramen from Discovery Channel wearing all the modern stuff would be on that yacht. Anyway, basically, it was a really, really complex plan. It all went wrong, just like Shackleton. You know, mm. we lost three of our guys to really bad. Uh, had very bad feet, frostbite, and that sort of stuff, trench foot, um, where your toes are just totally swollen and distended and you can't do anything. And that just threw all the uh, planning out the window. Then we had five days of the worst weather South Georgia can throw at you. We had, you know, 150, you know, knot winds, you know, 85, 85 knot, 150 kilometer an hour winds, blew away everything, Uh, had to shelter in, in a cave, um, five days pinned down by the worst weather you can get, gusting up to almost 200 kilometers an hour, you know. Insane. 100 miles an hour winds. Um, it was just a, a really dark time because, again, people are looking at you saying, okay, now what? You yeah. tell me what's going to happen, you know. And why didn't you quit? 
oh, you never quit. But you, you just all you need is to summon up the the resolve to take the next step. That's all you got to do. You just got to kind of keep. If you get to a point where you just can't see your way through it, you just retreat back into routine, or you you just find a way just to just just to stick it out for another ten minutes, and another ten minutes, another ten minutes, another hour. Yeah, and then hopefully you come out the other side and momentum carries you forward. You know? The group camaraderie component I thought was so interesting in reading the book that. Yeah. Shackleton, at one point, uh, one of the men, I forget who, was a really qualified banjo player. Yeah, He was yeah, excellent yeah. at the banjo. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And at one point, they're basically cutting down all their rations. They're like, hey, we, what food do we take? What supplies do we take? We're about to go to Elephant Island. What do we do? And one of the guys with the banjo said, yeah, I'll throw the banjo away. And he goes, no, 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 keep the banjo. And he goes, but I, I can carry three more pounds of food. He goes, no, 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 the banjo is more important for the group camaraderie than any amount of food that you can carry. It's so important. I mean, you know... What it says to people, apart from the, the music and that sort of stuff, is it says that, you know, if you've got enough spare capacity to take a musical instrument, you obviously don't think you're going to die, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like when Shackleton was on the ice after the ship had gone down. You know, you don't play soccer if you think you're just about to die. Right. And it, and it, it made people feel that he had the, he had things under control at some level. Mm. And if you're sitting there playing a bit of music, it, 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 you know, it's uplifting, but you also think, hey, you know, we're... Everything's okay, you know. Yeah. It kind of normalizes. It probably zaps things. you back to home a little yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, takes oh, you away from the place. Yeah, yeah, I'm not on an ice floe somewhere in the Antarctic. I'm at a pub. I'm I'm with my friends. Like yeah. there's some type of a, yeah. a deeper human component. Very clever. That, yeah. That's Shackleton all over. Emotional intelligence is the number one thing he had, you know, which is understanding how people worked. Mm-hmm. And if I was asked to say what the one take home was, I'd say that he. He knew that everybody was different in the team. Every everyone in the team is, is is an individual. They've all got their own hopes, aspirations, motivations, strengths, weaknesses. You've got to understand who that person is and speak to them in language that really kind of works for them mm. to get them to want to be part of the communal effort to try and achieve the goal. You know, That's you don't just kind of use a one size fits all uh, yeah. approach. Yeah, I've yeah. I've heard similar things before. It's interesting you say that. Like I've heard people say, in order to lead a man, you have to know what leads a man. That's right. It's, and it's absolutely right. And to really know someone at their core is the really yeah. the only way that you can you can get them to to follow you. I That's guess. right. That's yeah. right. And I mean, look, in my role as a you know climate scientist, basically, it's funny how we don't do that. We use kind of guilt and fear to try and move the world forward in terms of dealing with climate change. But actually, we need to take a leaf, a leaf out of Shackleton's book and 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 make the message a little bit more personalized to the audience whose behavior you see to change right you got to be a bit cleverer with it yeah i think that's great perspective now i'm curious i'm not an explorer i'm not an adventurer i <laughs> despite how i look today um you do look you you, you look like you look ready i yeah. dress for you i want you yeah, to know it's good I'm, I'm, um, I'm touched but i i'm curious what lessons can i take away from from these men to become a better leader myself how can i be a better man myself um and how can I, yeah, basically take components of this to apply to my own personal life? Oh, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, I think I think the things that Shackleton stood for are very good. I mean, I think he was he was selfless, so he always put others first. I mean, he, as I say, he he gave up on the goal of reaching South Pole, even though it was his life's ambition, just so he would save everybody. Really, so he was very very, very selfless. He was um, eternally optimistic, and he 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 said, "Optimism is true moral." courage he said and he always saw a positive in any situation so i think it's a very good skill for life if you have problems we all have them that come our way there's two ways of reacting to them one we can sort of be broken by them and think oh wasn't it bad haven't i 
been dealt a bad hand. Or you can go, you know what, if I can overcome this, it makes me a better person for having been able to overcome that problem. Um, we used that when we had bad weather. We thought, you know, bad weather, closer to what Shackleton had. Mm. Three guys drop out. We didn't say, hey, that's ruined the expedition. We said, well, he crossed the mountains with three guys because three of his guys had bad feet after the boat journey and brings us closer to him. So you're always looking for always looking for sort of positives out of any situation. I think being adaptable is very important in life. Mm-hmm. Having a why. You know, the rest is detail. You have why, why you're doing something. Yeah. The how you do it can change in accordance with the landscape. But if you've got a why and an actual kind of, you know, real, a real purpose-driven kind of goal in life or in business or whatever it is you're seeking to do. Um, yeah. The how can change in accordance with the landscape, you know, and that's really, really important. Absolutely. And I, then, that's and then, a great point. And having, the, and having the right people there with you for the journey, you know. And, uh, you know, Shackleton said for his perhaps apocryphal advert looking for people for the, uh, the big expedition team, he said men wanted for hazardous journey, months of bitter cold, darkness, low wages, honour and recognition in case of success, safe return, doubtful. Wow. Right, that was the advert that ran. And you got 3,000 applicants for 27 places. Right? Wow. And, you know... On the one level, you think, well, that's a bit of fun. On the other hand, it was such clever framing because he said, look, if you want to come and, you know, meet interesting people and go to interesting places, maybe this isn't for you. If you want to come and have a brutal, you know, challenging life experience, at the time you may not enjoy it, but you come out of it a better person. And he got that kind of person who came forward for the journey. So I think that ability to, to, to you know, challenge your team be selfless as a person. Don't ask people to do stuff you're not prepared to do yourself. You know, have those clever kind of psychological games that you can play. Understand how people tick. Mm-hmm. These are all great attributes of a good leader, I think. Yeah. And do you apply these things to your own life outside of your expedition? I, I really find I do. Yeah. yeah. You know, you find you meet <clears throat> you meet people in a particular situation in my role in climate science or whatever, and you think, I'll ask a few questions and work out kind of what motivates that person, where they're at on the spectrum of kind of, you know, believing in the issue, whether they want to act on it, whether they're, you know, opposed to it, you know. And then you speak using kind of language you think is going to really resonate with them to get them to maybe change their position. So you're kind of working in that way. You break the total down into manageable pieces. That's a message for expeditions just like it is for life or dealing with climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's your new why, I guess. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it is. You know, my expeditions now, I mean, I I, uh, I went back, by the way, uh, to South Georgia one more time, a bit like Shackleton. He sadly died when he went back on his fourth expedition. So the third one that he led, he died of a heart attack at the same place, at the scene of his greatest victory. It was very, very... Uh, you know, poetic and poetic. You know, his, his whole life was 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 grand theatre on the on the largest of scales. Yeah, you know? it's fascinating. To, he died of a heart attack the night he arrived at the scene of that victory. You know, it's just totally remarkable. And the fact he went back in the first place, he overcame the greatest survival voyage of all time, and then said, "I'm not finished." Went back for more. I think yeah. he enlisted in like World War One, like fought in the war for a little or something, and then he did. He did. You know. Um, it's interesting they they got back but you know he he was by that stage he was 41 right and you know 41 back in 1914 was like 61 yeah so he was deemed to be too old to do active service so he did sort of he did some interesting jobs but he wasn't firing guns and so i think he came back 
feeling dissatisfied with his role in the in the in the war perhaps mm-hmm. and feeling that he still had more to give and so he went back down in 1922 for one one more roll of the dice you know yeah. and that's that's where he's buried today that's where he's buried and uh, I was down there for the 100th anniversary of his death earlier this year it was a very powerful moment down at the grave yeah can you tell me about that Yes, I mean, look, I was invited to come. I was given the opportunity to come. I um, I went on actually two trips south this season that's just gone, so sort of November of last year through to January of this year. First one, I was there with Conrad Anker, who's a great legend of mountaineering from here in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the one who discovered um, uh, the body of George Mallory on Everest, mm. the guy who may have made it before Hillary. Right. Um, a remarkable, remarkable guy. Um, both Mallory and and Conrad, um, and then the second voyage I went was specifically to go to see the grave and be there with some other people who had had sort of paid to come, I guess. Um, and some of Shackleton's family was there as well, right? Not on this occasion, but we I have met um, his granddaughter at the grave. I met her after our expedition. She happened to be on a ship in Antarctica, and we rendezvoused at the grave after our expedition and had this wonderful. One hour before the weather just went to shit where we just couldn't do anything, where she arrived, we arrived, we were at the grave, had a moment, both went our separate ways, and then the weather went Wow, went to shit, and that was it. You know, it, was a, it was incredibly powerful, incredibly yeah. powerful. Those types of like poetic coincidences that occur are, are so fascinating. It's incredible. You know, even our expedition, you know, we left on the... Um, anniversary on, on the date of his on, on, the, on the on the the day in the calendar of of his death, and we finished our expedition on his birthday. Wow! If that's not a death to rebirth story, I don't know what is. I mean, it was really powerful. Yeah, it's remarkable powerful stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And this entire journey was documented for Discovery Channel. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we did a book with with um, with Harper Collins, and we right. did a PBS Discovery Channel three-part series that's amazing called chasing shackleton in this in this country and uh shackleton death or glory it's called yeah in in europe but uh yeah it was it was good well that's remarkable well thank you so much i really appreciate it i know uh you have to fly to to london soon yeah my next great challenge yeah exactly middle seat on united in 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 in, in, uh in coach tim jarvis thank you so much for for spending time with me and and sharing these stories with me this is the coolest thing just hanging out hanging out with an adventurer and and learning, man. Come along on the next one. I would love to. I, yeah. I really, it's one of my life's goals to go to Antarctica. I would love to. When, when, you the, should. when the time comes, can I reach out to you? Sure. Oh, man. I can't wait. I'll see you there. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks.